again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Did Jesus die for everyone, but that death only actually saved some of them? Or did Jesus die for those God decided to save, and that death actually saved all of them? Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, A Glorious Grace, The Sovereignty of Grace, with the third part of a message entitled, Doctrines of Grace. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. I'm now about to begin a teaching that is going to be one that's truly going to cut across the grain of most of our logic. And in light of that, we're not hoping and suggesting that what you hear, you just must believe and it's right and it can't be wrong. But I do want you to be open to what you see in God's truth. You might be in for a little surprise today. Whatever the case, it's going to be a challenging subject. And I'm going to invite you to pray with me just to get us ready for that. All right? Let's pray. Father, we do invite you, invite you to rule our hearts. We also invite you to rule our minds. And Lord, where I might teach anything contrary to what you have revealed to us in your word, let us be resilient to stand strong against embracing. On the other hand, what we find to be true in your word but countering our own logic and thoughts of the past. I pray that we would have open minds and open hearts. And I pray this not to the end that we might be able to say we believe what's right, but because there's an implication to our daily life and how it impacts our relationship with you. Grant us to see that today, to have a little glimpse of understanding We ask it in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I've changed the first line of what I'm introducing this message. As I say, we're coming near the end of a multiple-month teaching spanning two series, The Lovable Law being a long series on the Ten Commandments, and now we're in a series on the grace, a glorious grace. I say that coming near the end. Initially, I was saying we come today to the end. But something happened yesterday. I was taking my normal walk before my message on Saturday evening. It was uh, less than an hour before the beginning of the, the uh, Saturday evening service. I came inside and I was in a dilemma. It, it, it became very apparent to me that I could not do justice to this teaching trying to include the last three teachings of what we call the doctrines of grace. If you're new with us, the end of this series, I've reserved to teach the five doctrines of grace as they're known through history. These are the most important things to help us understand what's known as soteriology, the study, ology, the study of salvation, to really understand salvation. How important is that to understand our salvation? And this third doctrine is the doctrine that is most disputed of all five, I think that fair to say. 
There are people who say, I hold a four of the doctrines of grace. That's the way they would say it. And if anybody says that, you know exactly which one they don't hold to. It's this one right here. And as I came in, the first walk in the door, there's Carol sitting there. And uh, she asked how it was coming. And I said, man, I'm in a dilemma. I don't know what to do tonight. Uh, to do it justice, I'm going to go too long. And we're at the end of the series this week, supposedly, and so forth. And I, I just really don't know what to do. And I said, I think what I'm going to do is I'll figure out how we'll get to the rest. But I, I think I'm just going to focus on the one teaching, the next doctrine of grace. Well, she knew what that doctrine was. It's known best as limited atonement for you that are more in the theological circles. And she says, so you're going to just speak on limited atonement? I said, I think so. I wish you could have seen her face. It was as if to say, are you crazy? Because one thing we have to do, and that is connect this to the heart, not just the brain. And that's a challenging one to do so. I realize that. I'll say this, very deep, very practical. And I'm going to say it again this week. I said it already. Please do not run from deep. Do not run from difficult. I don't care what realm of life, you young people, if it's music you're studying and, and trying to learn a skill, don't, don't see a sheet of music and say, oh, that's just too hard. I can't do that. I'm a, I want to do something I can do easily. I want you're never going to become great at what you do. Winning happens when we run into difficult, when we run into hard. That's where we win. I will assure you, if you listened to Heisman last night, you would have heard, oh, what accounts? Well, it's because I had some strength coaches that were just pushing me to the limit. And one of them said, oh, that's a little hard for me. They say, give it to me, give it to me, because I want to win. The same is true in theology, and there's nothing more important. So don't do this. Oh, I just want something that sounds good and I agree with. It makes, don't do that. Push a little bit. It will be good for us all. I said it last week, and we'll say it again. My goal is not to convince you of any set of theological beliefs. Why would I do that? There, there's no reason that I say, I just want you, to, I want you to agree with what this church believes. I want you to agree with what I believe. Well, that would be ridiculous. Why? What's the win there? None whatsoever. But you need to know that I am not your teacher. Therefore, it is not my responsibility nor my desire to fill anybody's brains with new stuff. That's not my hope. What I am to this church is I am your pastor teacher pastor-teacher. I pastor through the teaching. There's some that just want teaching. No, no, no. Pastor-teaching, which is saying it is my responsibility to feed the soul. It's to feed the soul. And we are craving in our souls, we are craving for unconditional love. Old and young alike, the young are maybe screaming out for it in louder ways, but we're all craving it. I just want to be loved unconditionally by people and by God. But here's the problem. Unless you know the doctrines of grace as they've been historically taught, in my opinion, 
And not just mine, but some of the greatest of theologians who've ever lived would, would agree in saying, listen, if you want that kind of love to be experienced from God, then you better understand the doctrines of grace that proclaim such great love. Unconditional. Not conditioned in any form. Not just, just a little bit conditional. No, unconditional total. That's when we experience the love we're all searching for. There are five teachings that make up what are called the doctrines of grace. This has just been hundreds of years of historical teaching that have been formulated into these five basic teachings. Now, you need to know the history of it. I think it's only fair that you understand it'll make a lot of sense when you hear this. You see, it all began in terms of the five such teachings. In 1610, a Dutch theologian and professor named Jacob Arminius had just died. His disciples, his followers, they decided that they wanted to take a kind of a new theology that had been formulated and articulated so well through Jacob Arminius, and they wanted it to represent the teaching of the Dutch people, the church at large the church being connected to the state at that particular time. And so what happened is, is they formulated five teachings that they had heard from their, their teacher professor, and they stated it forth in, in, in these five basic statements. At that time, the church at Holland had embraced, what was interesting, we used it today in this survey, the Belgic Confession of Faith. And they'd also embraced the Heidelberg Confession of Faith. And not just there, but most Protestant churches throughout, throughout Europe. Well, at this time, these followers challenged the historic teaching. And they took it to Parliament. And Parliament had to figure out what to do. And so what they did is they, they took these five and they presented them to a national council. They called, actually, a synod meeting where the church leadership came together and they examined those five to make a decision about it. Now, as they did so, they met, listen to this, 154 sessions over seven months. And this is what they looked at and examined. Here are the five. Number one, the sinful fall of mankind in Adam and Eve left man wounded as a sinner, yet still capable of choosing God. Now, I taught something much different two weeks ago. I taught what we have here is God's grace being essential because whereas he uses the idea of Adam and Eve left man wounded as a sinner, can anybody remember what word I said? We're not wounded, we are what? We're dead. Totally different understanding. Totally different understanding. So we examine that week one. Week number two, Arminius said the best God knew, at best, God knew or foresaw who would respond to the gospel, and then God chose them. So we taught it a little bit different. What we said was God's grace, no, it's sovereign. It's sovereign. And that it's not that God foresaw, he foreloved, and those he predestined. And so we took on the hard subject matter of predestination, but not just from the mind vantage point, but from the heart. This week we look at number three. Arminius said Christ's death on the cross was designed 
to pardon every single purpose, person, yet only some believe. We're going to see that God's grace is particular, that it is established for certain people. What? That's going to challenge the idea that Jesus died for everybody. Oh, that's why we need to look at it. Know this, you certainly would want to at least know what is the historic church through the ages and ages and ages held to. You know, what did, what did Augustine in 300 A.D., the greatest theologian of his time and all the people around him that were under his teeth, what did they believe? You probably at least want to know the what and the why, so we'll, we'll tackle that one. And then I think it'll be the, the week after the New Year's, so we'll come back and we'll delay our next series one week and I'll complete Number four and five, God's grace, number four, given to save people, can be resisted and thus forever thwarted. Whereas the historic teaching that we'll look at is God's grace is irresistible. And then lastly, now this is one we'll all like. This is going to be easy. My next message is going to be a lot more fun. Man can be saved by God's grace, yet choose to abandon his once enjoyed salvation. Oh, you mean you can lose your salvation? He said, yeah. The followers said, you can lose your salvation. That's the church I grew up in. Uh, it was called an Arminian church in its theology. And, and I remember wrestling with the idea, nobody can know they're a Christian because it depends on how you live when you die. Well, of course that's the view because number one flows to two and two to three and three to four and four to five. And you, you can't have number five without the previous four. Whereas we're going to look at this in terms of God's grace is irretractable. Once you're a child of God, you're one forever and always will be. Well, the Senate at Dort, it examined and examined and examined, and, and after doing so, uh, they declared all five points of Arminius as to be invalid. It was only a few decades later, a group came along called the Westminster Divines, Westminster Divines took Christian leaders from all over the Christian world, particularly in Europe, and they brought them together, and for months and months and months, they declared, what does the Bible teach on all subject matters? And in doing so, they embraced fully those five that had been held through its history. And if you'd like to know what this church believes, this church subscribes, subscribes to the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 1600s. And I'll tell you, it's an outstanding statement of belief. It's what I believe. That's what the church believes. But there are godly, Bible-believing people who would not hold to the confession of faith, whether it be the Belgic, the Heidelberg, uh, Westminster. They won't hold to any of those. And, and they'll, they'll hold more to a modern theology that, that now says that doesn't make too much sense. We don't think that's accurate. Let me tell you. It doesn't mean that we're right. History is on our side. But we need to be, as the scripture says, more noble than the Bereans who study to find out for themselves, what does the Bible teach? My hope is at least you would see what is a view from scripture, at least assumed to be. And then maybe more importantly now, why is it important that we might hold to these teachings? That's my assignment, and let's see where it goes. Let's look at the, let's look at these uh, at the third. Before I 
perhaps can, can even jump into the third. Let me just read again the journal that I put up last week, that I wrote last week, that uh, just a little bit to explain week number one. Unless we see the extent of our sin, we cannot grasp the depth of love required by God to embrace us unconditionally. And that's what I dove into week number one, the sinfulness of man. Then number two, where we get into God's electing love. And unless we see the extent of God's sovereignty, hear this, if we don't see the extent of God's sovereignty in showing us grace, we will always see his embrace conditioned by something we've done to merit his love. Even if that might be faith itself. We have to be very careful. Now, you can go back to podcast if you're interested to dig deeper in those. Let's look at number three. Number three, God's grace is particular. Now, the followers of Arminius, as Arminius himself, believe that the death of Jesus Christ was designed for every person, yet only some of those people for whom he died actually believe. That would be a very common belief of Christians today. Historic teaching, though, said no, it was designed for certain individuals that God would call unto himself. So I want to just pose the question that has to be answered. And, and when you come to the options you have here, those options of answer will be determined by a second question. Here's the first question. The first question is this, whose punishment did Jesus bear? Of course, the options are all people or maybe a particular people, just people that are individuals that, that God has, has chosen to die for. I don't know what you choose there. Probably, if you're with most Christians in the modern church today, it's, well, he, he died for everybody. But we have to answer this second question, and that is, what saves sinners? That is the more important question. So I'm going to, well, first of all, let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand. I'm not going to ask you to shout out an answer. I'm not going to ask, say how many agree. None of that. But I would love for you to think yourself on where you are now in your thinking Theologically, it's important for all of us, baby Christian, young Christian, even seekers. What do you believe theologically about the death of Jesus and about Christianity? So here's the question. What saves sinners? Would you come to an answer in your mind? What saves sinners? Don't know what you came up with? Won't ask. But if you are with the vast majority of Christians in the modern church today, you will have said faith. Faith is what saves us. I would like to challenge that for all of our sake. Please do not believe it's faith that saves you. Whose faith? Your faith. That is dangerous territory. It is not our faith that saves us. It is the work of Jesus at Calvary that saves us. Hopefully you would agree and you hear that and say, well, I guess so. Now, faith is incredibly important. Faith is a means by which God's work at Calvary does save us. Uh, I mean, it is through the faith that we are saved, but the faith itself does not save us. It's only the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that saves us. So if Christ did die for every person, and it's true that it is his work of Calvary that saves us, 
then that would lead to the conclusion that all people would be saved. If he died for them and that's what saves you, then there it would, there it would be. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the universalism. Probably most of you have heard of universalism. Well, basically everybody is fine. You know, you're, everybody's okay. Well, this, is, uh, this comes out of the, the lineage of that thinking. It's like, well, he died for everybody. So, you know, you'd say, well, then everybody would be saved. The problem is, universalists would say, the problem is this. People don't know they're saved. And they don't live like they're saved. They don't act like they're saved. They don't enjoy life like they're saved. So we got to let everybody know they're okay with God. Everybody's good with God. Well, you can just pull Jesus out of the whole picture over time. And I'll tell you what you've got. What you've got left is, is, is really just an open universalism that's very common today. But no, I, I think there is reason to believe in Scripture that no, God died for the elect. So let's look at Scripture. Let's see what God's Word has to say. I'll give you four texts, beginning in John 17, and there are others, plenty of others. I ask on their behalf. Now, this is the high priestly prayer Jesus is preaching for his church. I mean, for all time, all of his people. He says, I do not ask on behalf of the world. The world would be those that are not his own. I'm not asking on their behalf, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Hmm. Let's look at a second. Matthew 1, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. That's who he saves. He saves his people from their sins. Look at a third text of the book of John, chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life, and he says, for the sheep, very interesting, you know how Jesus used the parable of the sheep and the goats. The sheep were his own, those that came to him. And those that were not his would be the goats. But he, he uses sheep to refer to those that are in his, his pasture, his family. He says, then he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. That's for whom he gives himself. Matthew 26, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And you'll see a numerous texts that talk about many, which is an interesting term to be used to talk about those for whom he has died. I realize that there are some texts such as 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 22, where you use the word all in the world sometimes. Now, but what you have to do is if you do a, a study of that, of the use of all in world and say, okay, let's just say that means every individual. And then you read the text that uses those words and you will come to the conclusion you cannot, you cannot say that means every individual. I mean, the text after text, you say it just can't be, and it isn't. It's used so often referred to Jew and Greek or maybe to be used of all kinds of people. But now, certainly there is debate, or all Christians that love the Lord would say, well, we're all in agreement on this. So, hey, maybe this is true, maybe it's not. Maybe he died for everybody, maybe he just died for his own. What difference does he make? You know, it all comes out the same. 
let me tell you, I, I disagree with that. I think there is something very, very important about all of these doctrines of grace and this being a vital, vital piece of it. I'm telling you, five is not true without four. And four, as we'll study next, will not come true without three. And three is not going to happen without two. And two is not going to happen except for one. It just works together. That's why Arminius says, here are my five. And the historic church says, no, here are my five. It's not we agree with number two, number four, number three, number... No, it's like it's either all or none. Now, in light of that, here's the real issue. The real issue is divine intention. So the question has to be, uh, to whom did, did he intend to save with his death? Did he intend for all people to be saved? If that be the case, then to a degree, it was a failure. Only to a degree, but not all people were saved. So his intention failed what he had intended to do. That strikes at the heart of sovereignty, of his being capable and in control. If he intended to save those whom he had foreloved, as we read last week, then with that, you would say, Oh, he accomplished it to exact fulfillment. So here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to assume that he died only for those he would redeem. Let's just assume that's correct. Whether you agree with it or not, just assume. And here would be my questions. How does that make you feel about God's work of salvation? I think you'd have to say, well, it would make me say he was very successful in everything he intended because it's fully accomplished. We just read in John, his sheep, every one of them, they're his. None will get away. None will escape. They're all his. You know what that tells me? That tells me he is very capable, very capable. You remember the prayer that I pray every morning? Our Father, who art in heaven, Lord's Prayer, heave on, lift it up, heaven, he's sovereign, he's capable, God is capable. But so what if he's capable, but he doesn't really care? He doesn't care about you, or he doesn't care about me, he doesn't really care, or the care is not very deep, it's not extreme, it's just a, a light care, no good. So the question is, how does it make you feel about God's love? If it's really true that he died for you individually and you individually and me individually, I would answer that and say that I don't deserve it at all. It would make me say it's absolutely unmerited. It would make me say I'm overwhelmed because I'd have to say he cares that much for me. Oh, I can ask the question, well, why me and not somebody else? There's no answer to that. We already looked at that last week. There's no answer to that question. Because of his great love with which he loved us, that's all it says, that he did these very things. But one thing it does leave me knowing, if that be the case, he really loves me. Unconditionally, he loves me. So it's our Father who art in heaven. Oh, we can pray that. 
We can pray that all day long. Our Father who art in heaven. Yep, you're my Father. I believe it. You're in heaven. Yeah, I know that. But then when we get struck in the pain of life, then we see the hardship and the things that seem unjust and unfair and cruel, and we immediately see the fracture that comes with this idea of father and say, you may be a father, but if you are, I agree you're my father, but I don't know how good a father you are. I'm not really sure. Oh, you may be in heaven, but either if you care that much, you must not have that much control because I guess I need to worry and plan out my own situation because I can't trust in you because who knows what you might do to me. That's what happens to a fractured belief system that says in detail, oh, I believe he's my father, I believe he's in heaven, but, but we don't know. How in the world will we ever, in the midst of the pain and suffering of life, ever get to that point where we'd say, you know what, I see even through that, you are my father and you're in heaven and I'm in good shape. I'll tell you why, because you understand your salvation. And you say, if you did this and you did this and you did this and you did this and this, oh my goodness. I just can't find myself really in too big a doubt about your love for me or your capability in all things. Something happens. It's our belief system that sets us free. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we long for the unconditional love. We, love, we long for the idea that I could see God's love through, through virtually anything. I love that destiny, but how do you get there? It's not easy, but you have to look and see the truth of God and wrestle through it. And all of a sudden you begin to see, yes, I couldn't come to you outside of you doing something for me. I was dead in my sin. And it's because of your love. And I, you didn't choose me because of what you saw I was going to do and my choice for you. You did it just because of your love for me. It's unmerited in every form and fashion. It's unconditional. And then you begin to sense, wow, look at the depth of my love. And as we said before, Jesus made it very clear, those who are loved much, love much. Those who are forgiven much, they love much. That's the beauty of these great doctrines. Let me, let me just bring this to conclusion. I know this cuts across the grain of human logic. What major things in Scripture don't seem to cut across the grain, huh? They just do. I've said it before. Oh, you want to you wanna look at salvation logically? What do you say? Well, you've you got to live it up, live life good. You've got to be a, a fine, outstanding person, moral, religious, and all this stuff. And God will look at you and say, you're good enough. And therefore, that's what all of us thought before we really heard the gospel. We just assume that. Many people hear the gospel and still assume it. I had the opportunity to speak when I was in college to the, the, the head coach at football there, with many Bear Bryant, and all everybody revered Bear Bryant, and we knew his wife, a dear Christian lady, and I had the opportunity of being in his office speaking to him. And when I did, I thought, you know, Lord, would you give me an opportunity? I'll try to take it. And he gave me an opportunity to share the gospel with him, and very quickly, very brief, but the main truths of the gospel. I'll never forget what he said. He said, "Son, I've never seen anything really good in life." Certainly not as good as that. That comes free. You earn whatever you get in this life. Well, what he was saying was, hey, I, I'm, just, I'm just following my logic. And that is logic. But Jesus comes along and says, uh-uh. In fact, if you really want salvation, 
you got to come to the place to know that you add nothing to your salvation. You morally can't offer anything good to God. You don't have anything good. You're dead in your sin. And then we begin to understand that and we go, oh, wow. Hmm. Or you see, as I've often said, okay, I, I really want to get what's good in life. I want, to re- I want to receive that way. How can I? Well, then grab hold. Get, the, get it right now. I mean, just hold on and work hard and hold on and save and hold on. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, if you really want to receive, here's what you do. Just give. Give. Just give. Become a giver. Be generous. We go, what? That's how I'm going to get. Oh, that's how you get. Oh, that didn't seem right. Well, how do I really find abundance? How do I find life? How do I find everything I'm looking for? Well, I got to live life to its best. I got to go out and get all the guys. It's not every teenager at some point in their life confronted with that saying, I want what's best and I know it's out there and it's in the party life. It's in the opposite sex. It's in this, it's whatever. No, Jesus comes along and says, actually, if you want life, you die. You die to yourself. That's how you really get life. You just die. Just die. I want to be on the top. I want people to look up at me. I want people to say, wow, I want popularity. I want fame. I want notoriety. Uh, Everybody's fighting to be heard and to be known and be popular. And Jesus comes along and says, oh, you know what? If you want to be first, you need to be last. Just be the servant of all. And that's the way you become. That's the way you get to the top. In fact, better word, be a slave. Be a slave to others. And watch what happens. The last shall be first. And it just all seems to cut across the grain, doesn't it? Well, there's no exception here. Certainly these things cut across the grain until you mine it pretty deep. And I think then you might discover something that what's logical to us is not always to God. Doesn't mean it's illogical. It's just we haven't seen the logic of it. That's the beauty of this thing called the gospel. The modern church, it's rejected what you've just heard these last three weeks. It's really rejected it. And I will suggest that as a result, God's role in salvation is now seen to be very small. Man's role in salvation is now very, very large. It's grown out of proportion the wrong way. And as a result, we have a self-centered church as we've never had it before. People just asking the church, begging the church, voting by their attendance, are you giving me what I want? Am I getting everything that makes me feel? Am I? That's where the church, it's very self-centered. There's no longer, just read the Puritans, read some of the people, you know, 15, 16, 1700 years, and you see a holiness, you see a a devotedness that's just unusual and you say wow what a love for God these people had not that they're not people that love God immensely today but but when you look at the whole of the church what a different church what's different not just the outcome but I suggest the reason we've stripped the theology of soteriology in such a way that now man seems to reign we're the important one And God, thank you, we needed you, we certainly did. As opposed to, oh God, I was hopeless, and look what you did. And oh God, how I love you because of it. I tell you that, these doctrines, they'll drive you to that kind of conclusion. They really will. 
Cameron is going to do me a favor because I don't want to lead you in a song. <laughs> and uh, with our staff, I have our worship and arts staff, I've been pressing some of the great hymns and the truths of those hymns. And I'd just, as I was meeting with the staff this is several months ago, I just used in my own personal worship beneath the cross of Jesus. And it hit me just like a slap in the face in a good way. And I, I said, guys, look at this second verse. And I started to read it. And when I did, I, I started weeping. I couldn't help it. And I don't weep that much. Not enough for sure. But here's the, here's the verse that I read. Upon the cross of Jesus, my eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart, with tears, two wonders, I confess, the wonder of his glorious love and my unworthiness. Isn't that something? Yeah, it's, it's seeing the unworthiness. That's the first doctrine of grace. His glorious love, there's your next four doctrines of grace. You see those things, something happens. I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you would. And we're going to sing that one verse. Then I'll close in prayer. And then we'll sing our closing song. Upon the cross of Jesus, my eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears to wonders I confess the wonders of His glorious love and my unworthiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the two glorious wonders. Uh, the wonders of your love and the wonders of our unworthiness, we put them together and we have to say, what a great salvation. I pray for friends here among us that might be investigating the faith of Christianity. Even now, they would see the love of the cross, might come before you and say, what I don't understand is okay, but what I do, I know you love me and I submit to you now. I pray that you would indwell hearts, change us forever. Make us as your followers all the more faithful because we see the great love and the great sovereignty, the strength that you offer, and the care. So we love you. We ask it all in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.